Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, I have in the beach shack, Anthony Seabold. He was born in Rockhampton, Queensland. He played for the Brisbane Broncos, the Canberra Raiders, and also had a stint in England for the London Broncos and Hull Kingston Rovers. He moved from his playing days into coaching, where he was an assistant coach of various teams, but he got his break to become head coach of the South Sydney Rabbitohs. He then moved to the Brisbane Broncos, where he went through some very tough times. He now is assistant coach for the English rugby team getting ready for next year's World Cup. So now let's sit back and listen to my chat with Anthony. Hey everyone, this week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure. You might know this guy if you're a rugby league fan, Anthony Seabold. Seeds, how are you, mate? Yeah, good, Hoppo. Pleasure to be on, mate. Mate, it's great to have you in. Now, you're born in Rockhampton, which is up in uh, Queensland for the overseas uh, listeners. Tell us, what was that like, mate, growing up in Rockhampton? Unreal spot, mate. Um, it's in central Queensland, so it's where the Tropic of Capricorn cuts through on the central Queensland sort of um, coastline, mate. So really good environment growing up. Big beef area, uh, big coal mining area in the region. We lived in Rocky itself and... Mate, it was rugby league in the, in the winter, mate, and cricket in the summer, and we'd go to the beach on weekends all to Great Keppel, mate. So really, uh, yeah, really enjoyed growing up there. Well, it's a great place to grow up. It's nice and warm as well. Mate, red hot, mate. I can remember some sometimes on a Saturday afternoon playing cricket in the summer, mate. It was over 40 degrees, so it was it was tough going, but no, it was, it was a great spot to grow up. So, mate, as a kid, did you you played a lot of sport, or was it mainly just the cricket and the footy? You know what? Well, they were the two major sports, mate. We're growing up, but um, you know, up there, you know, we had offerings like basketball, indoor cricket. Um, so we did that. School-wise, you know, we could play water polo and so on. So we had a, a real good mix of sports. But you know, the, the two popular sports were rugby league and and um, cricket, like I said before. But I think the, the, the couple of schools I went with, mate, they offered um, a whole heap of different sports during the the years. So, you know, even some in-house sport, you know, we played volleyball and so on, mate. So, yeah, wide range of sports, which, um, you know, I really, really enjoyed. Now, mate, uh, you did go on to play footy. Did, was that something you wanted to do when you were, you know, coming through as a teenager? Yeah, I went to a school called St. Brennan's College, which is a regional boarding school at Yapoon, which is on the coast there in central Queensland. And it was, it was a big sporting school, you know, and... I had an opportunity to join the Broncos straight out of school. So it was something I was really keen to pursue. Um, I was quite good at cricket as well. So up until that stage, I was in the emerging um, Shield program, uh, Sheffield Shield program. But um, yeah, I enjoyed footy and the opportunity to go and join the Broncos post-school and go to university in Brizzy, mate, was was sort of what was next for me, mate. So yeah, and I did want to pursue that that career, but it wasn't full-time then, Hopper. You know, like when I went down to Brizzy, it was, um, you know, even the Alfie Langers and those types of players were part-time. So yeah, very different to what it is today. So yeah, how was it there? Did you have to have another job when you were playing in those days or? 
you basically just made do it yet with the way you had to. Yeah, you had another job, you know. So I was only seventeen when I went down there. So I went to university, the Australian Catholic University in Brisbane. Uh, to do a teaching degree and to earn some money i actually worked in the development arm of the broncos so we'd go out to schools all around sort of southeast queensland do coaching clinics yeah promote the broncos brand in the school so um peter ryan and john plath who were playing first grade at the time led that program and, and there was myself and two or three other young guys who were in the under 20s or reserve grade squads who, who would go about so that's how i made some money down there and, and i did my university and and we trained an afternoon hopper so mate we'd finish um you know, our classes or whatever, and we'd get into training around about 3.30, 4 o'clock when Harvey and did our gym, did our field sessions, depending on what grade you were playing. And, um, yeah, no, it was, it was a really good, uh, you know, it was a really good opportunity post-school. And for people that don't know, I mean, people that do follow the NRL, back in that time, the Broncos were a very strong club and you would have played with some, you know, great players. Yeah, mate, that was an exceptional club to be part of. Obviously, the first grade were winning premierships there, 92 and 93. And I was playing in the lower grades then, and I, I played reserve grade at 17. And, and in the team that day were, were guys like uh, Mark Hone and uh, Gavin Allen, guys who played State of Origin. Uh, that's how you know that's how strong the first grade side was. So, yeah, it was really good learning experience. Um, you know, I wasn't quite ready for first grade then during my time at the Broncos, but had four years there and, and really enjoyed it, mate. It was almost... Um, it coincided with my university degree. So by the time I finished the Broncos, I had done um, a teaching degree and uh, moved down to Canberra. And then you did play for the Raiders when you were down in Canberra? Yeah, I did, mate. I was fortunate enough to play first grade down there. Mel Meninga was our coach. So growing up in central Queensland, you can imagine he's a bit of an idol for young Queensland blokes. So it was fantastic to be coached by Mel. He gave me um, the first grade of the boost. So yeah, loved playing for him. He was He's a great guy, but... Just the experience of playing with guys like Ricky Stewart and Laurie Daly and Brad Clyde, Dave Ferner, like the, the Raiders team and the Broncos team were probably the two dominant teams of, of the 90s in some regards, along with Manly. And yeah, to play with those sort of guys, mate, it was unreal. It was it was fantastic experience. Um, so I had a couple of years down there and, and then went over to, um, to the English Super League after that. But yeah, I loved my time at Canberra. So how was that? I mean, the Super League sort of hit around that mid-90s and it went crazy. What was that like? There's, there's, when you were saying before there wasn't much money, everyone had to sort of work, but I remember watching through the media and mate, it was millions and millions of dollars started getting offered. Yeah, so to the top players, mate, it was um, it was life-changing. For guys like myself, like when at 95, I was playing reserve grade, so I was 19 then. So life didn't really change for, for blokes in my position too much, particularly the Broncos, because once they had the, the sort of top 20 or top 22 players the Broncos signed, you know, Broncos were in in the Super League. So for guys like myself, we, we, we sort of didn't see a lot of money. So when I signed for Canberra, again, I was on similar money to what I was on the uh, the Broncos. But the difference was there was a lot of blokes in reserve grade down there who were on massive money, you know, and I'm talking about a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. So it was life-changing for some people there. And, and some guys handled it really well, and there are other guys didn't handle it so well and, and, spent, and you know, spent their money rather than, you know, buy a unit or, or whatever else. Uh, they spent it on cars and so on. So it was it was a really extraordinary time, Hopper. But, yeah, I didn't see a lot of money until I, I went to the English Super League. But, yeah, it was life-changing for some, that's for sure. Well, was it something that was – hard for some players that you would have seen that you know suddenly they had all this money and as you said they were just probably spending it all rather than trying to think of the future oh definitely mate i I think 
welfare and education wasn't as strongly embedded in clubs like it is now. Like if you go into an NRL club now, having been to you know three or four myself, um, you know there's two or three people who work in the welfare and education arm of the club, and and their role is obviously to make sure the well-being of the player is uh, you know is a priority, but. Um, second to that, you know, what they do when they transition post rugby league or, or whatever sport it is, you know, the AFL also um, and, and rugby union have that um, as well in Australia. But we didn't have that back then. Canberra did. We, we were attached to the AIS program there with regards to, um, you know, some, some education. So when I went to Canberra, I ended up doing a, or starting a master's of education. But at the time, it wasn't at the forefront. So a lot of players probably spent their money on, you know, jet skis, motorbikes, cars. And I'm, I know I'm generalising their hobo, but you know, the ones who had good advice from their managers or, or um, accountants or whatever, invested in property and, and so on. So, yeah, there was a, a real sort of mix. But we didn't get a lot of advice back then. Um, yeah, now there, there's so much more on the table from the NRL, the governing body, but also the individual clubs. I think the education is is much better. Well, I had um, Owen Craigie on last year and he said he was one that fell into that trap of a lot of money, young kid, spent everything, went off the rails and really struggled after that. So it was a big turning point, wasn't it, in that 90s to late 90s? Yeah, it was because the game went from like literally semi-professional hobo to, to full-time professional and not just full-time professional. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars for some players. So it was it, there was a, a massive shift in the game. The game went full-time around about the 96 year, you know, 1996 and everyone by 1997 was full-time. So when I went to Canberra, we were, we were full-time. So it was a big shift. Like players had to leave jobs um, to go full-time into, you know, the, the, the rugby league environment in, in our case. But um, yeah, it was massive. And, 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 you know, reading about Owen's story and, and listening to him, I think, you know, he shares his story as, a, as an example to, to others, you know, now, I suppose, to, you know, get the right advice and surround yourself with, you know, with the right people. But yeah, sadly, I think, you know, probably a lot of players didn't have the education or a lot of the clubs didn't have the education platforms for the players at the time. But you did go to the UK and play footy. Was it a lot different to the playing in Australia? Yeah, Hopper, it was sort of, I was, 24, 25 by that stage, and I had a really good offer to go and join London Broncos. And at the time, they were owned by Richard Branson, the you know who owns Virgin. Most people will have heard of Richard Branson. So he owned the club, and it was something I thought, you know, what would be a, a great experience. I think it signed there for a couple of years, you know, get over there, live in London. We were living in West London, so um, it was a great life experience. Rugby league wasn't very big in, in London. Like for our bigger games, we'd probably get around eight or 9,000. But when we would play Wigan or St. Helens or Leeds up north, you know, there'd be over 20,000 at the games and, um, you know, they'd sing a lot. And it was a fantastic atmosphere. But as a life experience, it was incredible. Like, you know, the opportunity to travel and, you know, even like, you know, if we played on a Friday night hopper, you know, there was an opportunity to spend, you know, two days away somewhere in Europe, which, you know, which is quite a novelty. But yeah, great experience, um, different sort of rugby. Yeah, fantastic life experience. Then coaching came about. When did that start? Or did you have the passion for coaching as you were coming through as a player? Well, I did a teaching degree, as I said. So by the time I was 21, mate, I was teaching year six in Brisbane. You know, So I was playing reserve grade and teaching year six class at 21, which I look back now and just think, was I, was I ready to be a teacher? Probably not. You know, <laughs> um, A big responsibility. But I think that led on to me starting a master's when I went down to the Raiders. And I finished that off when I was over in the Super League. And I think when I went back and taught, like I started coaching footy teams at school. And, you know, probably, you know, teaching and coaching is very similar in my opinion. So I started coaching 
teams at school, started coaching some representative schoolboy teams or junior teams, and it sort of just snowballed from there a bit, hop on. I was actually lecturing at University of Southern Queensland, the Faculty of Education, and um, a good friend of mine, John Dixon, who was um, one of Wayne Bennett's assistant coaches at the Broncos for a decade, he got a, a job over here in the UK starting up a new franchise in the south of Wales, and he asked me to come across. So that was my first full-time coaching role about 16 or 17 years ago now. So, yeah, it was a probably, you know, it was a little bit of a... a, a natural sort of pathway in some ways, teacher, then coaching high school teams, junior reps, and then getting an opportunity here in the UK. When you did come back to Australia, did you go straight down to with Melbourne and under Craig Bellamy? I didn't. First of all, what I did was I I went up to one of the Cowboys feeder teams, um, a team called Mackay Cutters, who played in the Queensland Cup. And essentially, mate, what would happen is the Cowboys would share their players across Cairns and Mackay. So we'd probably get four or five Cowboys contracted players of a weekend. They'd fly down for the captain's run and play for us. But it was predominantly local players, you know, a lot of them working in the mines or, um, you know, at the mining depot or working around town. So, mate, it gave me a great appreciation. You know, guys working really hard during the day than training over night time. Yeah, it was a great experience. And, and I was full-time, so I was not only coaching, mate, you know, you're sort of doing a lot of the, the other bits and pieces, you know, around schools, development and managerial things and so on. So it was, it was a, a good transition back to Australia. And then I went, as you said, I went down to the storm for um, just over three years, which I loved. Yeah, it was awesome down there. What's it like under Craig Bellamy? Obviously, people rate him as, as one of the best coaches around, uh, probably of his era. Uh, he's certainly the best coach that, you know, they've seen in the rugby league. He was fantastic to work for, like very, you know, very high work ethic, very thorough about how um, he goes about his work. There's a fantastic guy there who's the general manager of football in Frank Panisi as well. So those two guys taught me a lot um, in the three years there. They were, they were very good to me insofar as um, helping me learn and grow as a coach. And I started with the under-20s there, then um, my last couple of years there I was with the NRL squad. So, yeah, it was, it was great. Really good to work for. I can see why they've had sustained success for so long because of the leadership of, of Bellyache and, and Frank. Mate, uh, you've got to start with uh, South Sydney. Did that come after being with Melbourne? Yeah, it did, mate. I had been there for a year with, with Madge. Um, as an assistant coach and we didn't have a great year. We finished 12th and it had been a pretty challenging year. And yeah, at the end of the year, Shane Richardson, uh, who was the GM of, of football there, he, um, you know, he called me and said, look, I'd, I'd like to meet with you tomorrow morning. And Madge had been released from his contract that day. So uh, I went over there and met Richo and he said, look, I want you to have a think about taking on this role. And yeah, it was, it was, it really left the field. You know, I, I didn't expect, to be offered the job, but, you know, I took it on. It was hard because I'd uh, been mates with Mads for, for 20 years. We played together at the Raiders in 98 and you know, my wife, um, Holly, was, was good friends with Joey, his wife and so on. So it was, it was really a difficult situation. So I actually rang Mads you know, before I took the, the role on and just said, look, mate, this is what's being presented to me this morning. And um, he said, look, mate, you know, you, you, you're mad if you don't take it. You know, you, you deserve the opportunity. And I took the role and we had some success there that year, mate. And I really enjoyed not only being an assistant coach for, for 12 months, but being the head coach there for 12 months, mate, it was a great experience. And yeah, I, I really treasured that time. And do you find the teaching helped when obviously the, the players, they're all young, mentoring them has been a, a teaching background. Do you find that uh, make it a bit easier? Yeah, I did. I, as I said before, I, for me, coaching is teaching, Hopper. Like, um, 
you know, what you're trying to do is you're trying to narrow the, the player's focus to two or three things, not a thousand things. And I felt as though that has been a strength of mine and, you know, getting up in front of the group. So you think about a teacher or a lecturer, you know, getting up in front of the group and presenting and so on. So that's a very, you know, very much a transferable skill when you're coaching in front of the group. You've got to get up in front of the group and talk and get your message across and so on. And then training design. So training design is not unlike planning a, a, a lesson, you know, like, so, so there's so many transferable skills. So, yeah, like it certainly helped me. Um, I feel as I've been able to, to help um, a lot of younger players progress with their with their footy. And I mean, something I've been really passionate about, but um, yeah, probably fell out of love with it a little bit um, over the last couple of years. But yeah, lo- love that opportunity to, to help guide young players, that's for sure. Well, I mean, coaching is, is a tough gig and, and anyone that follows NRL realises that as soon as a team doesn't go well, the coach is basically the one that gets the blame. So you did go through a tough time with South? Yeah, well, it was the end of the time at South, really, Oppo. Like, we had a really, we had a very good year there in 2018. We, um, we'd finished 12th the previous couple of years, and then we made a really big jump to third. And Roosters, who won the premiership that year, they beat us 12-4 in the preliminary final, which was the last ever game at Sydney Football Stadium. So it was a fantastic game other than the result you know there's 42,000 sell out there um you know the two big guards rivals in in that part of Sydney playing against each other but they were too good for us on the night it was four all at half time and we had our opportunity probably where things went a bit south mate was was after that I was contacted by the Broncos and offered a um, an enormous deal by the Broncos and that's probably where my time sort of went a little bit sour there at the end of, of South Sydney which is something I really regret well, mate, uh, that was a great game. So I've, I've been a Roosters fan since about four yeah. years old, so <laughs> I, I quite that, enjoyed. Yeah. I, I quite enjoyed that one. <laughs> yeah, that was a tough old battle, mate. They were just too good for us tonight. Mate, there's been uh, there's been some great battles over the years between the Rabbits and the yeah. Roosters. Uh, that they uh, they basically don't uh, don't like each other, but players have swapped over clubs many a time. So yeah. it's uh, great great to see the uh, when they. It doesn't matter whether. One of the teams are running last in the comp or first in the comp. They just seem to pick up and, and rise for that game. Yeah, mate. Fantastic. It was fantastic to be part of. I think we played the Roosters three times that year. And every one of the games was was an outstanding game. Tough, you know, relentless, uh, passionate supporters. Mate, it was, it was fantastic. Now, mate, you did say you, you then went to the Broncos. What, what was the reason? You just You still had time on your contract with South? Yeah, mate, I had a year to go on my contract. It was a really difficult decision. Yeah, you spoke before about the Super League and probably the best analogy or way I can explain it was, you know, in the mid-90s when Super League came in, you know, there was vast amounts of money thrown at the players to swap across from the ARL to Super League. Well, mate, I had a year to go on my contract at Souths and Souths offered me a three-year extension, which I was keen to take. Then after the preliminary final, you know, through my agent, uh, Broncos, you know, contacted me and, said that they would like to meet with us. And that eventually resulted in a four-year deal being offered. And I said, I said no, you know, I'm not keen, five-year deal. And then um, it was a five-year deal with a six-year in my favour. And, and the couple of times I thought, or when I knocked it back, I just thought, you know, that's the right the right thing to do. Then the, the financial terms of the contract and the length of the contract, like I almost felt negligent knocking it back in the end. I was thinking, shit, I can actually set the family up here for – for, for life in a lot of ways and, and become bigger than footy. And, you know, my heart said stay at South. My head said go to Broncos. And in the end, I made a business decision. And, um, you know, I, I, 
I try, I, you know, I've tried to, you know, move on and it's that, that ancient history, but ultimately, you know, it was the wrong decision in the end, wasn't it? You know, I, we, we got to a finals my first year there, but the second year was, was ended really poorly. So um, that's, you know, that's life and you, you got to learn and take away your lessons and I won't call it ancient history now, but because it still hurts a little bit, but that's, it's done and I've learned a, a big lesson. Well, with this podcast, we touch on a lot of mental health side of things as well. Now, when you're in that, obviously went into a bit of a dark period of your life and, and obviously you'll have people, and, and I've been through it myself, where you think you've got friends, some are, are close friends, and then others you think they're friends, but at the end of the day, they're not really, they're probably knifing in the back or whatever else. Now, that happens everywhere. But how, did you fall into a, a dark place after the Bronco sort of incident? Yeah, I did. Um, hop out. Um, look, first and foremost, mate, I was embarrassed about how the results went in the end. Look, um, we won our first two games. And then there was a six or seven week break for COVID, and then we only won one of our next eleven games when I was in charge. So, you know, we weren't winning on the scoreboard, and that, you know, probably raised the pressure from the media and 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 supporters and and the board. You know, like you got to understand, you know, board people on boards often are supporters, so they go into their workplace and they go, "What's going on with the Broncos? You know, what are you doing? What are they doing? You can't win." So there was a lot of pressure, external pressure, and then I think that had an impact on the players, particularly with COVID. Like there was so many hard restrictions on at the time, and I think it really impacted the, the players. Certainly impacted. You know, the results certainly impacted myself and and people around us at the club there. And then there was a, a shitstorm on social media, mate. Like, it just I got heavily smashed on social media with um, false rumours and, you know, defamatory comments and spilled over to my family and my daughter, one of my daughters in particular. So it was a really difficult time, mate. And really, mate, I wanted to hide away. I, I really did. I just thought, this is not why I coach. Now, I understand when I took that six-year or five-year with a six-year in my favour deal at the Broncos, the spotlight was going to be on me, right? Because I took over from one of the best coaches in the history of our game. I left a big club and it, it, it wasn't painted in the right fashion. And that's one thing I regret. So, yeah, it was really hard. I had, you know, media camped out of, the house, out of my house for a couple of weeks there. And, yeah, it was really challenging time. And in actual fact, um, I've said this story a number of times, so it's nothing new, but Phil Gould run me and, He'd run me a few times, you know, during the really challenging periods, which I'm really, you know, I'm grateful for. And he just sort of said, mate, have you taken the kids to school? Have you taken your wife for a coffee and so on? And, and I said, no, I haven't, mate. I've sort of been hiding away. And he said, mate, don't, you know, don't dare hide behind the curtains, mate. You've got to get out there, hold your head up. high. look, this hasn't gone to, to plan, you know. Like, you know, you learn a lot and move forward. And that probably, you know, hit me in the nose a little bit, Hoppo. So, mate, yeah, I, I sort of thought, you know what, well, you can either feel sorry for yourself or I'm going to get back you know, get get back out and do those types of things. And, and I did that. And then we decided to move back to Sydney a couple of weeks after that as well. And, and life's been good, mate. You know, I'm working for England Rugby, one of the biggest unions in in the, in, the, in world sport. Eddie Jones, one of the best coaches in world sport. I'm over here in the Six Nations at the moment, mate, which, you know, we had 82,000 against Wales in the weekend at Twickenham. So, yeah, from a coaching point of view, it's um, I've moved on. But, yeah, it was a really difficult time for myself and the family. A lot of the you know, younger followers of this podcast, they because they've grown up with social media and everything, and they all find it tough. You know, it's so easy for someone to post something on social media and, and bag someone or, or rip it on, but they don't realise what it does to a person or a family through doing that. And a lot of people, whether you're a, a famous person or you know you're a coach or like myself, a lifeguard, we all go through these tough times. But how did you? come out of that 
Well, it was really a hard hopper and it impacted a lot of people close to me. And you said before about, you know, you think some people are your friends, you know, like when I was coaching and, and was having success at Souths and, and then in my first year before the, you know, before the semifinal, um, you know, one stage out, the Bronx had won seven from nine. And I had every man and their dog, you know, contacting me and, you know, inviting me to different things and, you know, asking me to, to talk, you know, you know, to different people and so on. And then, you know, it's what, eight months, nine months later or whatever, mate, you know, you, you left isolated and, and it was my schoolmates who, who got around me. You know, I actually went to one of my mates who's a, who's a cattle farmer, uh, Bruce Cook, <clears throat> up in um, central Queensland, just outside of Claremont. Went up there with a few other mates from school uh, to muster for a few days. So it was my schoolmates who rallied around me. It was my family who rallied around me. And, and so you, you start to understand what's important and it gives you a perspective. So from a shit experience, I've learned a lot about perspective and what's important. And I think the other thing that's come out of it, mate, um, Aaron Mullen's been a trooper in this space, but, you know, we've had some joy of reform at legislation level, you know, in parliament, you know, with regards to what you were talking about, you know, social media bullying, which is, it's, it's, it's bullshit, mate, in a lot of ways. And it's easy to be anonymous and, and throw up comments and, and start rumours or whatever it is um, on social media. But, um, yeah, going forward, there's, there is some new legislation, which um, we needed to be, mate. So... Yeah, from a couple of yeah ordinary sort of incidences, um, there's been some positive change. Yeah, and Erin's done a great job with that. She's uh, been on the front foot and and changed and, and as you said, brought in laws now where people can be held accountable and uh, and even jail time. Yeah, well, man, and it might save lives. That's the most important thing. You know what I mean? Like, if there's accountability on social media platforms, yeah, you know, you know I, I I read about it quite often. Um, you know, bullying at high school on social media. And it's close to my heart because I've got you know, one daughter at university and two daughters in high school. So, yeah, you don't want them to have to go through that. You don't want people's kids to go through that. You know, school time is meant to be you know, one of the best times of your life, isn't it? You know, and in some ways, um, yeah, we, it's, it's just about protecting people on social media. And as, as you said, mate, Erin Mullen has been a trooper in that space, like um, incredibly strong, mate, incredibly strong. And, and I've tried to support her where I can in a very small way, but Erin's been the, the leading uh, light in that space. Mate, back to coaching, you've coached some great players. Is there one that is, is a standout or it's too hard to choose on the, the guys you've coached? Oh, it, it's, it is hard to choose, but like, you know, down in Melbourne, getting the opportunity to, to, to coach, you know, Cooper Cronk, Billy Slater, Cameron Smith, they were, you know, outstanding guys off the field, brilliant players on the field. So that was great. At Souths, um, you know, Sam Burgess, you know, Greg Inglis and, and John Sutton were, were outstanding outstanding guys to coach they were the glue in the team and then the thing I loved about that was you know Damien Cook and Cody Walker sort of really progressed in, in 2018 to become the players they, they are now and they've continued to improve over the last few years but just seeing them on their way was good and then the Broncos um, you know Katoni Staggs he was a real standout you know along with Payne House those two guys um, you know so much potential so hopefully they, they go well I'm sure they'll go on and have great careers but yeah it's, it's been a joy to, to coach some of the best players mate as you said Mate, you did say now you're over in England and coaching there with Eddie Jones. I remember watching Eddie Jones down at Coogee Oval playing for Randwick back in the day. We used to go down. A few of my mates used to play uh, play rugby uh, down there. And, geez, they had some great size Randwick in those days. Yeah, mate, incredible sides back in the 80s. You know, when Eddie played there, like, 
they had like um, so many representative players. I think it, he was saying at one stage that they had like ten or eleven wallabies in their in their run on fifteen, or you know, guys who who had played for Australia. And you think of guys like Campisi and the Ella brothers and so on. So they had an incredible team. Bob, you know, Bob Dwyer was was the coach there for a while as well. So they had incredible success. Um, so. It, you know, I think you know that that sort of really influenced. Um, you know, yeah, well, I'm sure it's influenced Eddie in, in his coaching. But yeah, he, he's been great to work for, mate. It's um, you know, we're in the middle of a really tough, intense Six Nations tournament at the moment. We've got two games to go against Ireland and France, so yeah, we've got it all to play for. But it's been a fantastic experience. Good challenge, like tough challenge, changing coats um, at the elite level. Like this is the very elite level, and but yeah, it's been a brilliant challenge. How did you find adjusting from rugby league to rugby union? It's obviously a, a similar sort of sport, but tactically different. Yeah, definitely, mate. It's like there's some transferable things from both codes to the other, particularly in the unstructured part of the game. But you think about rugby union, look, it's, everything's a contest. So the breakdown's a contest, the scrum's a contest, the line, you know, every line out's a contest. So everything's a contest. So that's the biggest difference uh, between league and union. And there's plenty of transferable things, you know, principles, I'd call them, you know, that, uh, you know, that you can, can bring across to rugby union. But it's been great. I was sort of thinking when I was coming across, you know, I'm an Aussie coming into the England environment and I'm a league coach, you know, coming into a rugby union environment. So, you know, how how would the transition go? Um, what would the challenges be and so on? But the guys have been brilliant to work with. We've, we've um, had two series. So we had the autumn series where fortunately we were able to win all three games and then we've won two from our th- uh, first three here in this series. So it's it's been a positive start, but yeah, plenty of work to go against Ireland and France. Now, I've always wondered, is it, you think it's easier to go from rugby league to rugby union or rugby union to rugby league? Now you've been in both codes or this depends on the player? I think it depends on the player. I think some players, I'll, I'll give you an example. There's a guy called Tom Curry who plays for England and Tom plays um, as a number seven. So, you know, he, he's, a, he's a back row, he's a flanker. His work rate is exceptional, you know. So the way he plays the game, I think, would be well suited to rugby league. But there's some other elite players who play in different positions who probably wouldn't be suited to rugby league. And I think it's the same from rugby league across, I think, you know, some of the outside backs, you know. So you imagine Greg English playing as a, as a 15 in rugby union or as a 13 in rugby union, like it'd be hard to stop Tom Trebovich now. But then there'd be other guys who are elite, who are really elite players in, in league who just wouldn't necessarily, or their skills wouldn't necessarily translate. So I think it's an individual player. Plenty of players have had challenges and plenty of players have succeeded in the swap. Actually, two of us, Ashek, you know, one of the old Roosters men played for the Blues in the weekend. And from all reports, his first 40 minutes was outstanding on the booth. So um, it'd be great to follow his progression as well. Do you think you'll ever come back and coach rugby league in the future? And do you think by now going, having the rugby experience and the rugby league experience would make you a better coach? Well, I feel as I'm a better coach now, Hoppo, than, than when I started as a head coach in 2018. I've had some really good experiences, mate. Like, so I think this is my 17th year as a, as a, as a coach, as a full-time coach. And I reckon for 15 of those years or 14 of those years, they've been really positive, you know, had some great experiences as a you know as an assistant coach you know coaching with Queensland Origin you know, down in Melbourne and so on, and then I had a really you know um, probably shitty sort of eight or nine months there at the Broncos, and you can either let that impact you and you know let it ruin a passion, or you can say right that fa- you know I failed there, 
but what are my what are my lessons I, I, I would do differently next time? What would I take away, you know, to, to my next job? So would I coach again in league? I certainly haven't thought that I wouldn't. Do I want to? I'm not sure yet. I'm really enjoying this challenge. I'm signed through to the World Cup in France in 23. So, yeah, you know, but the other thing is, mate, I've got a lot more perspective. Like for a while there, mate, it was just coaching, 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 and you become quite selfish because it's all about the team. It's all about what's next. And I I know that I haven't prioritised the family at different times because of that. So, yeah, my priorities are different now, mate, you know. So although I spend some time away, you know, in camp here in, in the UK, mate, we, we live in Sydney and, you know, my priority when I'm back there is, is, is you know, the family. And you made a good point there that, when you failed, I mean, everybody fails at some stage during their life and, and, you know, multiple times, we all do. And it's good to get that message out to the kids that coming through, you know, as teenagers that, yeah, you you will fail, but it's how you bounce back and get back up and, and take that lesson that, and, and learn from it. Oh, man, that's that's what life's about. You know, if anyone thinks life is, is smooth sailing, then, then that's just not true. You know that, Hopper. You know what I mean? Like, Life is full of ups and downs and it's how you handle them. It's how you rebound. It's what you learn from them. So, mate, I'm a better, I'm a better, far better coach, far better person for having gone through what I went through in my time at the Broncos. You know, I wouldn't necessarily want to go through it again, but I've, I've learned it a lot. I've learned who to trust. Um, I've learned things about, you know, the people you put around you, the people you keep in the organisation, um, what you can do yourself better. You know, like what, what could I have done better because – there's a lot of things I could have done better in that instance and how I handled the, the transition from South to Brisbane and so on. So you learn a heap, mate. And and that's what it's about, mate. You know, so I mate, I, I won't go to my grave thinking I'm a failure as a person because of um, losing some footy games, you know, there at the Broncos in twenty twenty. That's for sure, mate. You know what I mean? So I've got a decent perspective on it. Yeah. Well that that's the way I uh, you know, I went through some tough times and, and the way I look at it too is the same is you just you can't change the past. That's the past. You got to live to today and and learn the lessons from that, and just don't make mistakes, you know, over and over again. So, mate, it's great to see that uh, you've bounced back. You're uh, over there coaching, and it's it's really really good to see, mate. Uh, it's thanks for coming into the beach shack. It's been a, a pleasure to get your story on on coaching, even though I'm a massive Roosters fan. No, all good, mate. They're a good side, mate. Trent Robbins has done a fantastic <laughs> job, hasn't he? Yeah, uh, yeah, respect what they do. Well, mate, at the end of the uh, interview, I do my uh, segment five fun facts. So I'll throw some questions at you. You can answer them any way you want. There's no wrong or right. So uh, we'll rip into those. Mate, uh, favourite childhood memory? My favourite childhood memory was going to watch my local footy team play, Rockhampton Brothers. So going with my dad to the local footy. I was a ball boy for them growing up as a kid and then playing with my mates in the footy afterwards while, while, while dad have a beer with his friends. Like I just remember that so clearly on a Sunday afternoon going to the Brothers Leeds Club, going to Brown Park and uh, Vicky Park and Rocky and that was unreal. It, yeah, it formed, that formed my love for, for, for footy, mate, you know, doing that on a Sunday. So yeah, mate, that, that were the best, yeah, best memories. My favourite takeaway food? That's an easy one, mate. Pizza. I like a pizza on Friday from the from the local bowls club, mate. In uh, yeah, where I live, it's awesome. What are you most proud of? Uh, well, I'm most proud of my, my, my daughters. Yeah, they're the thing that 
you know, they're, they're the, the, the crew that you know, motivate me and keep me going. And I'm proud of the way that I got through a really shit time um, after the Broncos got through it somehow. It seems a bit surreal. But, yeah, the main one is my daughters, mate. I'm, I'm proud of the, the young women there. They are and, and um, hopefully will continue to be. What's something your brain tries to make you do and you have to will yourself not to do it? That extra beer at the bowls club, mate. <laughs> that extra, extra beer at the bowls club. <laughs> I go down there with a few mates. That's probably it, mate. That's probably it. Well, that's probably what my wife would say. Mate, that's my problem too. Once I have about three or four beers, <laughs> I'm, I'm set in for the night. <laughs> what scene from a TV show will you never forget? I'm going to go with two, mate. One, when I was a kid. So the Colin Minogue, Jason Donovan wedding scene at Neighbours. I think I was about 13 or 14 when that happened and it was massive. I remember that clearly. I don't know why, but I won't forget that. And then as an adult, I loved Entourage. So the end of Entourage, mate, they, um, Vincent Chase is jumping in a jet to fly to Paris to get married. I love that series. For some reason, that sticks out and then the Neighbours one. Mate, seems great answers and uh, great to have you in the beach shack. And, uh, mate, so many people will enjoy your career and, and your coaching career, so... Well done, mate. It's uh, and what you did and came through, what you had to come through. It's uh, it's a great achievement. Yeah, good on you, Hopper, mate. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, mate. Yeah, much respect to to um, to yourself, mate, and uh, and what you do, mate. Yeah, big fan. Now let's go to Beach Banner. Okay, back in the beach shack, we've got Laurie Williams. Loz, how are you? I'm well, mate. Aloha, hopper. <laughs> now, mate, I, a lot of people swim the bay every day. They swim the length of Bondi. But I'm interested to know, how many laps has a lifeguard done? What's the record? So it all started with setting a record for the most number of laps across Bondi. It all started... Back in the early 1940s when a, uh, a Bondi lifeguard or beach inspector as they were known by the name of Bill the Whale Willis swam two laps of the bay, which of course we don't consider to be that much these days. It's about 800 metres across from the boat shed at North Bondi to the Bondi icebergs at the other end. There's a little bay at, just near the Bondi icebergs called The Boot. And he swam two laps. Then somewhere um, a little further on, I think it was Saturday, the 18th of December, 1948, he decided to take on a challenge for 30 pound, um, which I suppose probably worth, what's that, maybe $50, $60 these days. I'm not too sure. Some of his mates from North Bondi Surf Club and from the, uh, from the lifeguards uh, took the hat around and said, you know, if you can break the record, here's the money. So uh, he set off and swam a record 12 laps of Bondi Bay. It took him three and a half hours. And at the end of the swim, he landed on the uh, on the boat ramp up near the Amateur Fisherman's Club at North Bondi. He was rewarded. Uh, they, A few of the guys for 
the beach inspectors put him up on their shoulders and, you know, walked him up the ramp, rewarded him with a, a long neck of Tui's flag ale. Uh, at the end of his record-breaking swim, he gave himself about a half-hour break and then drank a further two gallons of beer in a very short space of time. Now, the whale was aptly named because he weighed in at about 15 stone in, in, in imperial measurement. The newspapers asked him after the, after the marathon swim what the key was, what, 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 what was his diet, and he answered with olive oil, beer and T-bone steaks. Well, recently, that, that record was broken quite a few times over the years, not just for the number of laps swum, but the time that those laps were swum in. And just recently, that record tumbled when a young fella from North Bondi Surf Club broke the record with, oh, I think it was 62 laps in... Um, I can't remember what, what amount of time it was, but uh, it was an incredible thing to do. But I guess when you go back to 1948, swimming 12 laps of the bay was quite a feat back in those days. Yeah, mate, it was amazing because people, as you said, didn't really do it back then. But these days, there's people swimming up and down the bay all day. It's uh, amazing how much they uh, they get into it in the crowds. I mean, I, I, you've seen it yourself at... I think it's on a Friday. The um, the salties get out there, and geez, I, I mean, there, there must be a hundred of them out there. Well, I think there's about three major swimming groups down there now. The salties, as as you mentioned, and uh, the can do group, and then there's another group. I think they might call themselves penguins. And and, and you're right that their their numbers are just phenomenal. Yeah, you've never seen. I mean, even when I started the nineties, the you know, only a few people would be swimming the bay and uh, there'd be times there that no one would be swimming out there. But now there's, I don't think it's a minute of the day, there's not someone well out the back swimming from uh, the boat ramp across to the icebergs. And I'm sure a few of your listeners would be thinking as they listen to this interview, well, what about the men in grey suits, the sharks? You know, wouldn't they be worried about them? But uh, safety in numbers. <laughs> They'd all be thinking the same thing. It's not going to be me, not with all these other people outside of me. <laughs> Swim in the middle. <laughs> but, you know, the over, especially the overseas listeners, because they think we've got millions of sharks and we, we get attacked all the time. And But tell them, the, the, you know, the chances of that, there hasn't really been a shark attack for, for many, many years. Well, when you when you consider that the last two fatal shark attacks at Bondi were in 1928, they were one month apart. There was a, a, a young boy and a, an older male, January and February of 1928. And what was the common denominator with both of those attacks were, were that both of them were swimming in the vicinity of a large school of salmon. So quite clearly, you know, and unfortunately, they were both bitten on the thigh and, you know, it was a case of mistaken identity because the shark was obviously there for the school of salmon. But that is a long, long time. Don't know if you can do the math there, but 71, 20, 90, yeah, 92, 93 years since since we've had a fatal attack. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, yeah, you've got a pretty good... uh, Pretty good average being out there swimming laps. Oh, good Lord, yeah, yeah. And, and we know that, you know, they swim past, but they've no interest in us as uh, as we have no interest in, in meeting them face-to-face. 
All right, Loz, uh, mate, thanks for coming in and having a chat. I'll, uh, we'll catch up down the beach soon. Fantastic. Love talking to you. Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. This week's letter in the mailbag is from Vanessa, and she is from Melbourne. She uh, says, has the water quality cleaned up since the floods in Sydney? Well, Vanessa, the uh, water quality is starting to get a lot better. It's, It's taken a good two to three weeks to start cleaning up. It's still a little bit dirty. A lot of logs and trees were found getting washed up on the beaches over the last two weeks. So it has been quite dangerous in the surf. So with all those logs. Also, the water quality is something that uh, you don't really want to be swimming in uh, till it clears up. But, you know, looking a lot better now, hopefully another uh, week, it will uh, be a lot better to get out there again and have a swim. Thanks everyone for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.